Worship is life. The rest is just details. This is a foundational truth that we learned two weeks ago. But last week, we heard how the Israelites abdicated that foundational truth just about as quickly as they entered the promised land. They abandoned the one true God of their fathers and adopted the cultural gods of the people around them and treated them as their own gods. They bowed down and they served the counterfeit unholy trinity of money, sex, and power. And as easy as it is to look at them with a critical eye, we must be aware and take caution that if we are not strong and courageous, we could fall into the same trap and end up doing the same things. The book of Judges tells us that the story of Israel is a story of the slow and steady downward spiral into apostasy. These were what many scholars refer to as the dark ages of Israel because the vast majority of the people had turned from the light of the Lord and trusted in the darkness of the world. Ironically, in all of this, worship was still central to Israel. Worship was still central to Israel. And we might ask, why would an apostate people continue to devote themselves to worship? Well, as one Christian author put it, the reason worship is central for everyone is because no one is not a worshiper. Worship is at once about who we are, about who or what our God is, and about how we choose to live. At this moment, and for as long as the world endures, everybody inhabiting the world is bowing down and serving someone or something. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or whatever, or even God through Jesus Christ. No one is not a worshiper. An easier way to put that is to say everyone is a worshiper of someone or of something. And so in Israel, worship was central to their life. The problem is they did not worship Yahweh, the God who delivered them out of Egypt and brought them across the wasteland, they were worshiping gods made in the image and likeness of man. The spiritual problems that we see in Israel are not unlike the spiritual problems that we see in America. Think about it. Worship was decentralized, individualized, and secularized. Self-interest was the supreme value. Everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. There was no prophet. There was no king. And the very first priest you meet in the book of Judges had sold his soul to the devil. He was, in fact, for sale and giving himself to the highest bidder. The other priests we meet in the book of Judges are just as corrupt. This is the spiritual backdrop of Judges 13. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, and maybe it's time for a little good news, no, it gets worse, because now we need to explore something of the socio-political backdrop. And this will help us understand why what is taking place at the heart of Judges 13 is so crucial. 
Manoah came from the tribe of Dan. That doesn't mean much to any of us because we don't hear much about the tribe of Dan. And the things we do learn about Dan are not good. In the days of Joshua, the Danites lacked the moral fortitude to take possession of the land the Lord God had given them. And so they ended up extending their sojourney even in the promised land for several years. In the days of the judges, they lacked the moral courage to help other tribes in their time of need. At one point, in their cowardice and weakness, they schemed to surprise attack a smaller, peace-loving, unsuspecting people. They struck them with the edge of the sword and burned their city with fire and took possession of their land. In other words, Dan, who could not take possession of the land God gave them, decided to take possession of a different land. And they flexed and proved themselves to be bullies against a smaller, weaker people. To add insult to injury, the Danites stole the icons and images of those people and set up their own worship centers and established their own priesthood and worshiped the icons and images of those other gods as if they were their new gods. And I tell you all of this to highlight the fact that it was in those dark times, it was in the midst of that spiritually barren tribe that the angel of the Lord appeared to a young married couple and announced some wonderful news. In the midst of all of the bad news and the darkness of their world, this news must have been refreshing to their ears. The husband was named Manoah. His name means rest. And it's a fitting name because in his lifetime, God intends to raise up a new judge to bring rest to Israel. His wife's name is not given. In some ways, she's an every woman. In other ways, in other ways, she is every woman who has ever experienced the heartbreak and the heartache of infertility. The angel of the Lord is the same figure we met two weeks ago. Not an ordinary angel, but the pre-incarnate God-man, the second person of the Holy Trinity. These are the figures and the characters in this story. And it's this angel that comes to these people. He's already spoken to Israel before, and now he speaks again. The book of Judges opens with his words, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And this promise is vital and just as crucial now as it ever was, not only because the people of God have broken covenant, but because of what is about to happen next in this story, despite all of the covenant breaking. God is faithful even if we are not. And the lesson we learn from Old Testament to New Testament into our personal experience is that God's faithfulness does not depend on our faithfulness. Our faithfulness depends on His. So the angel of the Lord appears to this woman and promises to do for her a remarkable thing, something that He has already done many times before for some of her foremothers. You can think of the stories of Sarah and Rebecca. He promised to open her womb and to give her a child. 
But in this case, it's more detailed. It's not just any child. It's a son who will save his people from their enemies. And just imagine how this mother who has been waiting, however long she's been waiting to have a child, learns that she is going to have a son, a savior. And you know what's going through her mind is she's like, my son is going to be a superhero like Superman. He's going to do amazing things. Every mother believes their son is a superhero, a star that's going to shine brightly. But she has every reason to believe it because the angel says he is going to save his people. Whatever else she imagined that to look like and feel like, whatever she thought about his story and how it was going to play out, there is no possible way she could have known the full truth of the matter. There's no way she could have known that one day her son would indeed act like a superhero and that in the end he would save his people. By stretching out his arms. By laying down his own life. By bringing down the house upon his enemies and crushing their heads as they celebrated a festival to a false god. You see, by promising the woman a son that would save his people, the angel of the Lord has done this woman and all of us a real favor. Because he has revived for us the long-forgotten promise that was made way back in the Garden of Eden, way back in the beginning. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promised the woman that someday her seed would crush the serpent's head. That her son would save the world from its enemy. And so as many times as The angel of the Lord has appeared to different women in the story of the Bible to announce this kind of thing of opening their womb and giving them a child. We need to know that this is not the last time it will happen. It's not the last time the angel will appear to a young woman and promise to give her a son who will save his people. The story of Judges 13 simply foreshadows for us the story of the Virgin Mary And her son, our Savior, Jesus. An angel will announce that she has found favor with God. And she will conceive by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And bear the Son of God. And she will call his name Jesus. The Lord saves. For he will save his people from the serpent. Now all these things remind us once again that God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper and that all of God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now while these things might be on our minds, they certainly were not on the mind of Manoah and his wife, at least not yet. We have the Privilege of looking backwards through the story and seeing things in hindsight through the lens of the gospel. But they're still on the other side of that story as the story is unfolding. So you know what's on their mind are not Christophanies and typologies and shadows and realities. No, what's on their mind is simply that they are going to have a baby boy. And they're so excited. They're going to name him Samson which means little son, not little boy, but 
little sun as opposed to the moon. Little sun. Sunny. And they're likely going to sing to him, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. And skies are very gray where they live now. But he's going to be called Little Son, and that's fitting because his birth will be assigned to them and to the tribe of Dan and to all who know the story that light shines in the darkness. So in all their excitement, Manoah invites this man of God to stick around, stay a while, share a meal with us, don't rush off so quickly. It's very common in their day. This is how you supported ministers. Messengers of God's word would show up, give you his message, and you'd feed them fried chicken and send them on their way. In this case, a goat and some bread. Now, the reason Manoah is doing this is because he does not yet realize who this man of God is. He thinks he's still a man. He doesn't realize that the man is actually an angel and that the angel is, none, is nothing less than the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord plays along. And you have to love this about the Lord God. He has a great sense of humor. The angel of the Lord takes the invitation of this common hospitality He flips the script and he turns it into an invitation for a type of holy communion. If you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. If you cook a meal for me, I'm not going to eat with you. You see what he's done? The guest has become the host. But this poses a spiritual and liturgical problem for Manoah. And here's why. We don't know if Manoah was properly catechized. We don't know how well he knew and followed the law of God. Given the spiritual condition of Israel and his tribe, we can safely assume that his spiritual formation, his knowledge of God's word is quite lacking. But just in case he needs a reminder, or maybe he never knew, here's what the law of God says, and this is why this poses a dilemma for him. The law of God says the priest shall offer all of the chopped up goat and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The law goes on to say, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So whether Manoah knew it or not, the angel of the Lord certainly knew it, but whether Manoah knew it or not, he was not the right person to offer the sacrifice because he's not a priest. And he was not in the right place to offer the sacrifice because his backyard does not house the tabernacle of the Lord. So Manoah is in a tight spot. The question we must ask is why did the angel of the Lord encourage Manoah to make a burnt offering knowing that he would have to violate the law of God to do it? 
Well, if the angel of the Lord is who we believe he is, then he has the authority to give Manoah a special dispensation to act as a priest and to offer a sacrifice on a stone altar in his backyard. And so it's with the Lord's gracious permission that Manoah is able to delight in God's law without having to disobey God's law. Now, the reason I go to great pains to tell you all of this is because I want you to see something important here. This story gives us a subtle hint of something that will become a bold fact when Jesus Christ comes in the flesh. In the opening of the Gospel of John, we learn that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The apostles will build on that and say, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And Manoah is given this special dispensation to offer this offering because grace and truth and life are coming to him through the Spirit of Christ. It's at this point that it starts dawning on Manoah that this man ain't no ordinary man. There's something different about him, something mysterious about this messenger. So before proceeding with the burnt offering, he does what he needed to do, and that is to ask, who are you? What is your name? And we know that this angel of the Lord must have been the pre-incarnate Christ because he answers Manoah's question with a question. And if you read the Gospels long enough, you know that this is exactly the kind of thing that the Lord Jesus likes to do. What is your name? And the angel answers, why do you ask my name? It is sheer wonder. It is beyond understanding. The Hebrew word that's used here means incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. Now we are the descendants of the Enlightenment. We live after the scientific revolution. We are the heirs of generations of rationalists. We like to make sense of things. We like to get rid of mystery. We like to have all of the answers. And so this answer flies in the face of our black and white scientific rationalism because it forces us to enter into the realm of God's ultra-high-definition mystical realism. What is your name? It's beyond understanding. What? It's incomprehensible. Gregory of Nazianus in the 4th century wrote on these kinds of things, and he said, "...insofar as it is graspable, the divine draws us towards himself... For what is completely ungraspable is unhoped for and unsought by us. Yet, as the divine draws us towards himself, one wonders at the ungraspable, and one desires more intensely the object of wonder. For the divine is without limits and difficult to contemplate, and this alone is entirely graspable." What? If you think it was hard to read this, try to understand it. His point is simply this. God is incomprehensible. This one might help a little more. Herman Bavink, 
Dutch Reformed theologian in the early 20th century put it this way, in words we can all understand. Mystery is the lifeblood of theological reflection. From the start of its labors, dogmatic theology is shrouded in mystery. It stands before God, the incomprehensible one. This knowledge leads to adoration and worship. To know God is to live. God is incomprehensible. And many of our forefathers have rightly added, God is ineffable, inconceivable, inscrutable, immeasurable. You get the point. God can only be known by revelation, not by pure reason. He can be only known by enlightenment, not by pure experience. And so asking God to reveal himself to you and to enlighten the eyes of your heart is the right move. It is the right way to start. What is God's name? Who are you? And the angel simply says, wonderful. But later on, the prophet Isaiah, because of the mercy of God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, expounds on this and says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah was speaking about none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so in light of the angel's wonderful answer, Manoah takes the young goat, the grain offering, he offers it on the rock with fire to the Lord. And when the sacrifices are offered, the angel, whose name is wonderful, does a wonderful thing. As the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife saw it. The presence of the Lord in the sacrificial fire rising up from the altar assures them that their offering is pleasing and acceptable to God. But that's not the only thing they see. That's not what concerns them. They're concerned about who they saw. God ascending in the fire with the sacrifice from the altar and disappearing from human sight is crucial. It foreshadows something important about the gospel. It foreshadows the sacrificial offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ at the cross and his ascension through the clouds into heaven. The book of Hebrews puts it this way when it says, When Jesus appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come and offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, he ascended into heaven and entered into the holy places once for all by the efficacy of his own blood. Thus he secured an eternal redemption for all God's people. Whatever else you might think about what Manoah and his wife saw on the altar that day, you have to know that this is far more wonderful than the wonderful thing they saw. Why? Because Christ has entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus stands in heaven, seated at the right hand of God for your sake, in your place, representing you before God. This is a wonderful thing. He has opened up a new and living way out of the dark ages, up from the downward spiral to the higher ground of the heaven of heavens. 
Is there anything more wonderful or beautiful than that? And if Manoah and his wife could fall on their faces to the ground when they saw the mere shadow of these things, how much more should we fall in reverence and awe now that we see the reality of these things in the person and work of Jesus Christ? When Manoah saw God ascend in the fire, he realized that the man of God was, in fact, the angel of the Lord. And he did not rush out to sign a book deal or make movies or shoot a YouTube video or load up his podcasts. He turned to his wife with the sentence of death in his heart and said, we're as good as dead Because we have seen God. He was terror stricken. And in his fear and the anguish of his heart, it did not occur to him that he had actually lived long enough to freak out and tell these things to his wife. He's in panic mode. But look at her. She is at peace. Why? If you've been married for five minutes, you know why. Because you both can't freak out at the same time. (laughs) One of you has to stay calm. you got to balance each other. Manoah's wife does just that. Go back through the story in your own time. Read the whole thing. And you will see that Manoah's wife shines like stars in the universe in this story. She's the one with the real spiritual insight. And she is doing here what a helper is supposed to do. She is calm, cool, collected. And then she counsels her husband. And her husband does what he's supposed to do when he's in a state of chaos. Listen to his wife and receive her counsel. She says to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. It's the voice of reason, spiritual insight pouring into his ears, down into his heart. As a side note, husbands and wives, this is why you need each other for better or worse. Till death do you part. That's why you need to listen to each other and help each other in these times. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on gifts that the Lord intends to give you through each other. Mrs. Manoah's counsel holds true for you and me just as much as it did for him. Here's how. Every Lord's Day, we dare near we dare to draw near to God in worship. And every Lord's Day, we see wonderful things in His Word, at His table, in each other, in our prayers, our songs, all these wonderful things. And yet we live. Every Lord's Day, we confess our sins. We acknowledge our need of the cleansing blood of Christ. We confess our failures, our weaknesses. We know that the wages of sin is death and that we deserve to die for our sins. 
and yet we live. Why? Because if the Lord meant to kill us, he would not have accepted Jesus' sacrifice at the cross for us. If the Lord meant to kill us, he would not accept the sign and seal of the sacrifice of his son on this table. He would not show us his love and mercy by the Spirit. He would not proclaim the gospel of grace to us again and again and again. Sisters and brothers, I want you to know that the Lord does not intend to kill you. He does not intend to kill you. Jesus has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He intends to save you from sin and death and to make you live. And at the end of all things, he even intends to let his children including you, see him and live. In his fantastic book, Seeing God, Dr. Hans Borsma makes the case that the beatific vision, the blessed sight promised to us is the human telos, the ultimate purpose and goal of our life as promised by God throughout all of the scriptures. God wants us to see him. He wants to be seen. He wants to be known in face-to-face communion. And we know this, for example, because King David says in Psalm 27, Hear, O Lord, when I cry, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. One thing I ask of the Lord That I will seek after to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The Apostle John builds on this when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. We shall see Jesus as he is in all of his glory, all of his beauty, all of his majesty. No clouds, no disguises, no filters, no veils. We will see him as he is. And the promise held out to us in the gospel is that when we see God, we will not be terror stricken like Manoah. For we will be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. We will be changed. From one degree of glory to the other. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray.